0: your bibles to uh, matthew chapter 15 you'll look at 15 we're going to look at one particular account this narrative of the this, the canaanite woman and his, her daughter who is oppressed by a demon and we're going to look at this story i want to read a little bit more than just that account if you would we're going to start in the very first verse of chapter 15 to give us a little context to do that so fifteen i i'll read the section Then we'll get to the section we're going to look at this morning tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need, he, he need not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And then in verse 12, Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you, heard this saying? And then to verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she was crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And a response to the word of God, together the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever forever. If we look at this passage i 'm going to look at this this week and, and Ryan next week is going to, to look at another passage that 's kind of consecutive to this in the in the Gospels just we 're going to look at these accounts of, of Jesus as we read through the Gospels, we spend a fair amount of time obviously during the Passion Week looking at the last week in the life of Christ. A lot of the gospels are taken up with that that last week oftentimes the gospels have been called these passion narratives with extended introductions, right? Because so much of the gospel writers, their interest is that last week, what happens in the life of Christ, right? His betrayal and his crucifixion and his resurrection is the emphasis of the gospel writers. But the, the previous to that, we get little glimpses, right? Little snapshots of his earthly ministry the, the roughly three years prior to his death and his resurrection, where each of the gospel Writers present for us a, a picture of who Jesus is and why he came, and each gospel writer, even though there 's some variation, present for us a complementary picture, kind of a, 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 a net of we see a picture of who Christ was and why he came, and they, they choose different historical events to, to kind of craft their theology to give us a picture of who Jesus is and why he came. If you read them together, you see that they, they do go together but reading them sometimes can be surprising. In this particular passage, right, there's some challenges even in the reading of this, of of what exactly is going on. As I've read it personally and read other passages, there's certain things that Jesus does and that Jesus says that are surprising. There's certain things that he does and he says that you read and you go, wow, I wouldn't have done it quite like that. I wouldn't have said that or I wouldn't. Surely, maybe I would have done that. And if, that makes sense, right? Because we're people and he is the, the son of God. And so it would make sense that you, as we read this and we go, wow, I'm not sure I quite understand what you're doing. You put mud on a blind man's eyes. You're asleep in a boat during the middle of a storm. You, you curse a, a fig tree so it doesn't bear fruit. And you go, I'm not so sure I can quite grasp what is happening. But some of those accounts, and this is one of those, personally in all honesty, over the course of a chunk of my life, has been confusing to me. The way that Jesus would interact with this woman in this great need that he would distance himself from her and to understand what's going on here, it seems at times almost offensive. What is he doing and why doesn't he respond like we might expect him to respond to a person in need? And I think... As we look at these kinds of challenging passages, we begin to try to take them apart. It's not going to answer all of our questions, but it's going to stretch our understanding of who God is. Because when we come up against a section of Scripture that we don't quite understand, it doesn't, He doesn't respond quite like we would expect. What we're going to find is we're going to find something about who God is. We're going to find something about what He is about that stretches the way we'd normally think. And so that's good for us. And we're going to look at this. And this is really, I chose this because it's been hard for me to read it and to make sense of it and to come to a conclusion. But as we do that, we'll find a little bit more about who God is. It's going to stretch our understanding of him. But we start with some hard questions, right? And this account is, as this woman comes crying out, Right? And we're told explicitly in this passage that Jesus doesn't respond to her. He purposefully chooses not to respond. He ignores this woman for a period of time such as she needs to continue to cry out to him. He waits so long that the disciples have to get involved, right? Out of pure exasperation, they're saying, can you do something about this? Can you, can you just quiet her up? Just give her what she needs. She is driving us crazy. And then even as, as Jesus responds to His disciples and, and, and reminds them that, by the way, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, the house of Israel. And then she continues to pursue Him. And it looks like He's distancing Himself from her. As He lays down these words about, it's not right to give the bread to the children rather than the, the dogs. And, and so you go, what's what's happening in this section? It seems almost offensive. And then finally, right? You get to the end and everything turns. And you say, well, if you were so dead set on not helping her need, why does everything turn on a dime? And not just reluctantly, but you are commending her faith. And you're praising her faith. What's going on in this passage? How do we make sense of it? And what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about genuine faith? And about how God responds in the presence of genuine faith. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to give just a little bit of a backdrop though. This is set right in the middle, right in the middle of, of, of Matthew as he writes. So it's helpful to kind of get some context. You'll find this same narrative in, in the book of Mark. But some of the most difficult parts of this narrative Matthew includes. Namely the distancing and the the, the choice that Jesus makes to not respond to her need. And so there's some, some challenges that Matthew presents for us. But first of all, for Matthew, it's interesting, it's, it's important to know the location of where this has taken place. He is in Gentile territory. We read the, the account of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and he leaves the area of Galilee and he goes to Tyre and Sidon. The majority of Matthew's references to Jesus locationally is in, is in Galilee, But this one little section, these few verses, we have him leaving and taking with his disciples the 30 to 50 mile journey up to this region that's north and west, right on the Mediterranean, into pagan territory, into enemy territory is where we find Jesus. He's he's heading this direction. He's left the Sea of Galilee and then. Matthew takes us right back to the Sea of Galilee in verse 29. So this one account that we have of this woman, this Canaanite woman, is the only account that we have of Jesus on this field trip that he takes his disciples on. It's the only picture we have of the probably several weeks up to a month or two it would have taken for him to make this journey. And so significant journey that he takes... But this is the one thing that we know. And we ask the question, why exactly is he going to this place? We're not exactly told why. Why does he go to this region? We're told that he withdraws from uh, Galilee, probably to get away from the Pharisees to some degree, perhaps to have some uninterrupted time to instruct and to teach his disciples. We get that to be the case. But he goes into this uh, pagan territory among unclean people. And if there's one thing we know about the life of Christ and his ministry from beginning to end, and that there was nothing that was done in accident, that everything that he did or everything that he didn't do was purposeful. And so we know this journey to Tyre and Sidon, the the, the choice that Matthew made to include this in his gospel is significant because where Jesus is and what he is doing is important to see. But then secondly... We go farther. We understand that Matthew is interested in location, but he's also interested in the fact that this woman is a Gentile and not just a Gentile, but she's a Canaanite, right? She's not just a non-Jew. She's a Canaanite. And that that word, that particular description of her would have got the attention of the Jews to whom he is writing. As they saw that, it's not just a Gentile woman. She represents the pagan people who were enemies of Israel. So it would have got their attention as Matthew describes her as a Canaanite. Mark describes her as a Syrophoenician, which was true also. But we see that, that Matthew, as he paints his picture, he reminds us of who she is, that she is a Gentile. And Matthew has a particular interest in locating the focus of Jesus' ministry to the Jews. However, in this point in time, he finds himself in Gentile territory. There's two passages, one here and one earlier where Jesus makes this statement that, that, that is unique to Matthew. He says, I was sent only to the the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he says, he wants to make it clear in in chapter 10, he says the same thing as he sends his disciples out. I was sent only to them. And he shows the narrowness of his Earthly ministry is to Gentiles, but here he stands right with this, this woman crying out after him, and so what Matthew wants to do for us is these two things is he wants, he needs to expand the reader 's understanding of the scope of god 's redemptive plan and so what he does in, in jesus 's ministry to to Jews that Matthew charts a course from beginning to end of god 's heart and his interest in the, the ministry not just being for Jews, but for all people. And so I'm just a few points along the path. If you draw a line with Matthew, there's these points that Matthew places along his narrative to show God's heart for the nations. His global interest, not for one people, but the whole world. It opens up in chapter one with the genealogy of the Messiah. And in it, you find women who are Gentiles. If you go to chapter 2, you see that who shows up a little bit later, but the the Magi, right? These mystics, these wise men who were Gentiles. They come and they bring gifts to the Christ child. And you go, well, that's strange. And then you jump to chapter 8. And what does Matthew do? He, He shows us this picture of this centurion, this Roman officer who comes to Jesus and needs help for his servant. And Jesus does meet the need there. And what does Jesus do? He says, great is your faith. He commends the faith of this officer. And then we get to chapter 15. The this, this section we're looking at this morning. We see another dot, right? Where he says, I want to show you another interest that I have. That God is interested in the, in the world. Not just one race or one group of people. And then you can trace it on from here in several different points. In chapter 21, there's this interaction that Jesus has with the, with the Jewish leaders. And he says, you have not been faithful with what I have given to you and he takes away the kingdom from them and he gives it to those who bear its fruits. Powerful passage in 21 and then several other places he he describes the interest of what he is doing as it relates to the gospel going to the entire world. And then he ends Matthew 28:18 through 20 with the great commission with the, maybe the clearest formulation of his interest that we would go and make disciples. that what, And on, on behalf of the ministry that he has, he has done on life, death and resurrection, he sends them out. And so Matthew is interested for the, for the uh, readers, for us to see the picture of what God is doing. And this narrative we're looking at today fits right squarely on that line of God's interest in, in the redeeming all people, all nations. That the world is surely on his heart, even where we have a kind of conflict, it seems, between Jesus's local ministry and his universal one. We'll talk about that in a moment. But then finally, in terms of look at location, we look at Matthew's interest in the Gentiles. But then his interest also in placing back to back the, the picture of the, the, the uh, Jewish leaders and their response and this woman's. I mentioned, I read the story, but basically they're accusing Jesus for not washing his hands. And he accuses them of violating the very commands of God, by keeping their own traditions. And then he takes the opportunity to step in and to give an instruction to the people around him. Right. To say, hey, guys, you need to know that the corruption doesn't come from without. It comes from within. It comes from within the heart. It's not what you say. It's not what you do with your hands in terms of washing. It comes from the inside. And then his disciples had this interesting line. They, they look at him and said, Jesus, did you know that you offended the Pharisees? Did, did, you, did you know that by what you said, that was an offense to them? And it's a strong word that you got their attention. Of course, Jesus knew what he was doing there. And so in, in this context, right, you see that the Jewish leaders were faithless. They were unyielding. They were easily offended And and, and we're faithless as a result of that. And it's no surprise, it's no accident that the very next account you have is the picture of this woman who gives us an example of faith that Jesus commends to the greatest degree. And it's like Matthew says, I want you to see these two side by side. This is what faith doesn't look like. This is what faith does look like. And so we understand this story in that context. Location, people group, and then in the context immediately of the book. So let's look at this, the story, the account itself, with that kind of broader view in mind. In verse 22, we see he, and Matthew writes, And behold, a Canaanite woman came from that region. That came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Matthew uses this characteristic word. Some of your versions might not have it. But behold, he says. It's basically his way to say, look, don't miss this account. Don't miss this story. So it's behold. And we we find out what happens here. What are we to look at? That this Canaanite woman comes out, probably comes from a remote region, has heard that Jesus is in the area and she comes to find him, have her need met. She comes and she cries out to him. And and the language she used, right? Lord, son of David is interesting language in the lips of a Canaanite, right? Son of David. This is Jewish language. She understands something about who he is. In fact, she's graphed something very important about who Jesus is. And she comes to him. And and what's her need, right? She declares it to him. She she says, my daughter is severely oppressed. Oppressed by a demon. That this dem- demonic Im- influence upon her is great. The language there again is important. He is, It was severe. We learn something about what our enemy seeks to do. And that's to destroy. To destroy the very image of God in mankind. And so this, this picture of this demonic oppression in this girl. And the woman has come to the conclusion. She's found there's absolutely nothing I can do. I'm completely helpless. I need help. Now, this picture, this image isn't something we see every day. It's likely you've never seen that experience. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in various forms. My wife and and daughter spent time a couple years ago in Gabon, Africa and Western Africa. And they tell a story that kind of marked each one of them of this series, this this, um, trip that they took this into the interior, into a very remote area with lots of witchcraft and such that was in there in this. And they came in and they showed the Jesus film. And then they described that after showing the film about the life of Christ and, the, and sharing the gospel, the people would just line up to be prayed for. And that a story not so different from the story of this woman, they heard multiple times. As, mo- as mothers would come with children who were oppressed by demons. And we, uh, we see that the, the, state, the state of this woman, is that she was in a situation where she desperately needed help. She desperately needed someone to help meet her need. But then verse 23, right? We have this surprise turn. Everything you know about Jesus at this point would say, well, surely he will meet that need without waiting, without delay. But but Matthew tells us, this is unique to him in verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. He chooses to not respond to her crying out. He delays, he says, He doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything for or against. And we read that and go, what is going on here? How do we understand that? In fact, he, he delays so long that his disciples, right? They're going, can you do something about this? This is very annoying, exasperating. Can you, can you just kind of meet her needs so that maybe she'll kind of move on? Send her away. And the implication is just, just take care of this thing. And their interest, of course, is less about her well-being and more about their own. You see, Jesus is purposefully and perplexingly silent. He's purposefully and perplexingly. He chooses to not respond. And that gets our attention. It's surprising for the reader to go, what is he doing? But Matthew says, hold on. And then in verse 24 continues on, as his disciples had said, send her away. And then he says, he answered, and most likely this line is to them. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's reminding them of something he's already told them. Back in chapter 10, as he sent them out, he says, this, that, that's my focus. The priority of my ministry, the priority of your ministry is the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he reminds them of that fact. Now now the rest of the dialogue that takes place in this really is built upon a a right understanding of exactly what that means. What does it mean that Jesus says my ministry is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? How do we understand what's going on there? What does he mean by that statement? And then how do we mesh it in the context of what Matthew is doing with the gospel going from the Jews to the world? How do we put those Together, well, first of all, it's important to identify here a couple aspects of Jesus's ministry, the way that he understood it and the way that we can understand it today. That's helpful. First of all, the, the purpose of Jesus's public ministry it, it was focused on the nation of Israel, the lost sheep of the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, as he says. And you, know, what's he doing to them? What's his ministry to them? His ministry is to be the Messiah, right? And and so he bears the marks, the characteristics of what it means to be Messiah. That's his ministry to be identified, unmistakably so, as Messiah. With what he does, with what he says, with his righteousness, with his authority. Healing, the mute speak, the blind see, the lame walk were marks. They were signs pointing to the Messiah. So his ministry as Messiah was to Israel, that they would see this and they couldn't miss it. And so that was the focus. That was the, pri- the priority of his ministry. But it was preliminary to his universal ministry as redeemer of the world. So the degree to which he would be faithful in that ministry was the basis on which he would carry out his ministry to the nations as redeemer. One commentator helps us with these aspects of his ministry uh, Leon Morris writes, there are, ministries he, there, there are mysteries here that we cannot solve. That is, it's hard to really mesh the two together. How do we understand the, the local earthly ministry of Jesus in light of his cosmic universal redeemer ministry? He goes, we can't solve them all. But he goes on to say, but while Jesus came to make that atonement for sin, which would mean salvation for people in any place throughout the whole world, that was his intention, that was his scope which would mean salvation for people throughout the whole world, he did not come to engage in a worldwide mission of healing or the like. His earthly mission was to Israelites, here described as the lost sheep. I hope that makes sense. What he's saying is, and he's, he, you see if there were a tension, which this tension, by the way, is going to be completely resolved between his local ministry, which is to Jews, and then his ministry in particular to everyone else in, in a, on a broader sense so he mentions this probably in the hearing of the woman in verse 25 the woman even with this will not be repelled she will not give up but she came and knelt before him saying lord help me she kneels she's reverent she's humble she comes to him and requests his help and then 26 and 27 are the is the, the, the verses, right, the the words that are difficult to kind of to understand. In twenty six Jesus responds, even to this 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 place where she's in, humbly she comes, with this incredible need, nowhere else to go. And what's Jesus say? And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. This can be profoundly misunderstood. Profoundly, by a number of different things, right? Certainly the understanding of what he's saying, the words themselves. But there's something else that even sometimes the text can't bring out. But it's important for us to even ask the question How did he say it? What, What was the tone in his voice? What was the look in his eyes? How did he look at her even as he says these hard words? And by the way, our own conception of what Jesus is like will fill in the gaps of what we can't see or what we hear in any story in our lives. How, how do you hear his voice? How do you see his face? How does he speak? And, and, and the beauty of this is we've got plenty of examples of Jesus interacting with other people in great need. And in general, what we find is that Jesus, the Messiah, the Redeemer, is kind and he's gentle as he comes in contact with people in great need. So even as we hear these hard words, we need to understand the way that the Messiah, the way that Jesus would be interacting with her. One commentator put it this way. He said, the smile on Jesus' face and the compassion in his eyes rob the words of any insult or bitterness and so we understand this interaction at best in kind of a, a proverbial or a parable kind of way. It's not really an insult to her. It's really a setting that he's, he is describing to this woman, right? There's a household. And it's not right, and there's priorities in the household. And it's not right to throw bread, to give the bread that's for the children to the dogs in the household. Right. And this it's important too, the, the language itself, there's two different words for dog, and one form of that word is the, the kind of the scavenger stray kind of dog, and that's the one that's used in kind of a derogatory way in the scriptures. But this is a household pet. That's what he's referring to. It's not right to take to change the priorities between the children to the dogs, to give what rightly belongs to the children, to give it to the pets. He's basically saying there's priorities in the household. And the children, and this is for them. So he's not calling all Gentiles dogs, but rather he's just describing the priority of feeding the children first. So, but make no mistake, this this isn't an insult. But we also need to read it and understand it's, it's also a hard truth. It's not an easy truth, but it needs to be said. It's important for him to, to acknowledge that. And it's probably important for the Jews who are reading this to hear this, to know that Jesus' priority was his earthly ministry was to the Jews, for them to get that. But it would not in the end prevent the infinitely compassionate heart of Jesus from overflowing into the life of this woman. The apparent tension between his earthly and his his earthly ministry as redeemer and his ministry, earthly ministry as Messiah and Redeemer. They're not in tension. That's going to be relieved. I want to make quick, one quick observation on this too. Um, she's not offended. She's not offended. If we turn back to the Jewish leaders as Jesus speaks to them earlier on, the disciples acknowledge, right, they were offended. Jesus was not meaning to be offensive. He was meaning to teach. The truth was a hard one he was trying to get to them. The truth is a hard one that this woman is coming face to face with. But she's not offended. And we see a picture of these Jewish leaders. They couldn't stomach the hard teaching of Jesus. But she could. She was not going to be turned away because she knew the only source of her need. And the ongoing the the response that she makes in verse 27 only tells us more about how she understands what Jesus has just said. That that he was communicating something that that she understood about his priority to ministry. She responds in verse 27. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Her her response is amazing. it, It captures his attention. It should capture ours as well. Essentially, this is what she's saying. She's saying, yes, Lord, I understand the historical privilege of Israel, the nation of Israel. And I understand that we are historical enemies of Israel. I get that, that the promises and your role as Messiah belongs to them primarily. I get that. I'm not arguing that. That is without question. But then she goes a little bit further. She goes, she agrees with that statement. But then she says, but even the pets in the household are fed. Even the pets in the household receive the crumbs that fall from the table. And this is where the, the little bit of Greek that I learned in, in seminary, that I forgot most of it, is really, really helpful. Because she pulls and she uses a word that helps us understand the really essence, the nature of her faith. There's a word for breadcrumb. And then there's a term that's actually a diminutive form, a smaller form. You've got breadcrumb. And she uses the smaller form. What she is saying is this. Even the crumbs of the crumbs that fall from the table will be sufficient. Even the smallest part of the smallest part from you will be sufficient to meet my needs. She says, there's only one place and I don't need much. I need the crumb of the crumb that comes from the table. That will be sufficient. She gets it that this is a picture of faith that 's profound. We see jesus response, she responds to this witty, humble, drenched in faith response to him she She gets it that there 's only one place to go, and even the smallest part of what he gives will be sufficient and we see in verse twenty eight that surprises surprise things turn again, right? Jesus is full of surprises in, in this this emotion. Filled response, he says, "A woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire." And her daughter was healed instantly. Mark or Matthew reminds us of that. "A woman, great is your faith." So he's put her off, right? He said, "He, he said I'm, he didn't respond to her cryings out," and then he says, "Oh, you know, but but my priority is really to Israel." But she responds again. But here. The dam breaks. Everything turns. And He doesn't just give her what she wants. He commends her. He praises her, if you can put it in that kind of language, for this faith that she demonstrated in this one phrase, because she gets it. She understands what true faith is. The smallest part of the smallest part of what you give. There's nowhere else to go. The essence of her faith is seen in this and immediately her daughter was healed. And so the question for us is how do we square this emotional response of Jesus with this change of mind, with his apparent reluctance leading up to this place? What do we learn about God? What do we learn about faith and nature of it? And more importantly, what do we learn about how Jesus, how God responds to true genuine faith in our lives? Does it stretch our understanding of who God is and, and what faith looks like. And as we look at Jesus' response, this one who's the very image of God, God in the form of a man, right? We learn something may amazing about how he responds to true faith. I don't know about you, but there's something just mysterious and profound when you see the creator being amazed at the creation. When the creator responds is, oh, wow, this, this is really amazing, And you go, what what is that? He doesn't just say, oh, yeah, I knew you were going to do that. He gets it. He looks at it and he commends it. He acknowledges it. He is in awe of it, if you can put it that way. He is captured by the exercise of this God-centered, reverent, humble faith. Right? This faith that she displays can have no other source but God himself. The way that she is responding and what she gets and what she understands about who he is, her dependence, can have no other source except for God. And as a result of that source, of that faith coming from God, he cannot respond in any other way but to meet her need. So he stands and he says, wow, this faith has come from the Father. And he responds to that. Many look at this account and explain it as the art of persuasion. And I've got to say that we would miss everything about this account if we just see it simply as one who is really persuasive. Simply one who knows the right titles, the right humility, the right language, the right way to appeal, the right persistence. You get what you want. But but that misses everything about what's going on here because she is in the presence of one who delights in being persuaded by faith that is genuine. He's not a hard sell. It looks that way, but there's purpose in that. He delights in responding to faith. And this picture of this God-centered faith, this God-originated faith, enables him to respond. See, Jesus saw in her all that was lacking in Israel, humble, reverent Faith that was not easily offended, right? No presumption, no basis on what she would earn it, no status, no inherent worth, but simply faith, knowledge of who he was, assent, she bows her knee to who he was, and then trust. You see, faith is that. That is that we can learn it it is complete dependence if it's nothing else. It is complete dependence on the only one who can really meet your need. The only place of hope. That is what faith at the core, it really is. And if you look at that, that interchange between the dogs and the children in the household. See, she is less interested in looking at the difference between the two members of the household. And she's more interested in understanding how they're both the same. The children and the dogs are both completely dependent on the father to meet their needs. She gets that. I don't care how we're different. We're the same in that there's only one who can meet our needs. And that's the source. That's the very essence of her faith. She goes, there's nowhere else I can go. She goes, I don't care if I'm a dog or a pet. But the fact is, there's only one who can really feed me, who can really meet my need. And so as a result, she Receives a foretaste of the crumbs of the kingdom of God, this fruit from her faith that has been implanted in her. And Jesus delights in being overwhelmed by this faith, the faith of his children. He enjoys giving the kingdom to those who demonstrate its fruits. It's clear where this faith has come from. He delights in responding, he enjoys being persuaded. As we look at this account in the context of the the gospel of Matthew back, we see a little bit of what Jesus is up to. But we look, what is Matthew doing with his gospel? We see here that this account of this Canaanite woman exemplifying faith in this profound way is is a place where we, we look and we go, wow, we find faith in the most Unusual places. It's a, it's a dot in one of those lines that Matthew is drawing from beginning to end. It's not an arbitrary incident. Why did Jesus go to Tyre and Sidon? We're not exactly sure. But we might stretch it and just say, just like when he needed to go to Samaria to meet the woman at the well, we might also speculate that he had to go to Tyre and Sidon. If for no other reason except to encounter this woman, to put her faith on display for the disciples... For the church to see, to see it in juxtaposition to the lack of faith, the faithful, faithlessness of the Israel of Israel at that time, and to see that in this foreign land, with this Gentile woman, is an example of faith that is completely unexpected. John Chrysostom from the fourth century writes. This he says, so we might surmise that this is the reason he put her off, in order that he might proclaim aloud the saying, and that he might crown the woman. Be it done for you as you desire. That he that he waited for a purpose. And another um, theologian of the fourth century, Theodore of Antioch, the interpreter, writes this: By his answer, he showed what he had premeditated from the outset. For it was for this reason that he postponed in giving a reply, that the woman might cry aloud with this word. Thereby, he would show her to be worthy of a thousand crowns, for it was not because he did not want to give her the gift that he delayed, but because he sought and took care beforehand to reveal her faith. And that's the secret, right? Why did he wait? Why did he wait was to reveal her faith. I don't know about you, but as I think about my own life, there are times and seasons that I cry out to God. And you wait. And you go, okay, do you hear me? And, and, and the scripture says, he didn't respond to her a word. And you go, do you hear what I'm saying? And we wonder if he hears or if he's going to respond. in those seasons of silence, we have this picture, this assurance from this passage of what he is doing. That he's doing something in us. He is bringing our faith to bear. He is bringing it. He is exposing it because to cry out, to continue to call out, to continue to wait, to continue to seek him and not be offended and not turn away is a central mark of what faith is. And in those seasons of silence, we wait and we cry out. And we anticipate the day and the point in time in which he will show up. So this beautiful picture for us of faith is a kind of example, a kind of model to follow. See, Jesus' ministry, His earthly ministry would come to an end. And that would be actually the basis and the inception of His heavenly universal ministry in which His food would be available to all without distinction, without any reserve whatsoever. There was no tension. The tension was resolved as he met her and there is no tension now because he sits at the right hand of the Father, able, willing, ready to give to us based upon our need and our faith. He desires to respond to us in this way, to those with humble, not easily offended, utterly dependent faith who demonstrate that by relentlessly coming to him and to find that he is the only source that we will find it. So Matthew says, don't miss these points along the line. Don't miss what faith looks like. And he ends his gospel with not a point or a dot, but he ends it with an arrow. He ends his gospel with this this commission and Jesus himself, after his death and resurrection, sends his, his followers out. Go and make disciples of all nations. His interest is that this faith. Pictured here in this woman. In the most unlikely of places. Would as well go to the most unlikely of places. That it would go through those who understand it. Those who live it out. Those who understand there's only one source. To have their needs met. The only place of hope. Is to be found in him. And so Matthew calls us. To live out the faith. That's pictured here. To understand that God delights. In being persuaded by that faith. That he's implanted and then sends us out with that faith to see what our Father will do with it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thanks for surprising us. Uh, the ways that you are at work in our lives. We, we don't understand and yet please for each one of us plant and grow and instill in us this, this faith that will not be offended. continues to grab hold of you and what's true of who you are in our dependence not ever let go and i don't know the circumstances of all that are here but i know that the what we need is to live this faith out attached bound to you and would you respond in our lives in appropriate times that we would find and see that indeed you are this good god who enjoys being persuaded and Father, in the, the broader needs of our congregation, I pray, help us to live this out as well. Help us to be strengthened in that. And help us to have faith and in, in, indeed to come alongside others to strengthen the faith of others. And to remind them as well that this faith has been planted in us is not for our own keeping. It's to display your goodness. It's to be brought forth in the gospel. And it's to go out from these doors so that others will see, guess what? There's something to believe in. There's something to hope in. And, Father, that we would be quick to speak and to live out this truth and not surprised when we find this gospel, this faith implanted by you in the lives of others around us in these places that might surprise us. So go with us today. Help us to live this out. Strengthen us, I pray in Jesus' name.